0: and welcome to the next installment of Meet Your Lecturers from Cardiff University's Politics Society. I'm Morgan Perry, and today I'm joined by...
1: Hi, I'm uh, Dr. Rosie Walters. I'm a lecturer in international relations.
0: Thanks so much for joining us. We'll, um, I guess, kick things off straight away. Uh, you know, Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Where are you from originally, and, and sort of what brought you to Cardiff?
1: Yeah, so I'm originally from um, Dorset, um, but kind of grew up in Cambridge. And then have actually kind of since about 2005 lived in Bristol and done kind of various degrees there, basically, and then also worked in the charity sector. Um, and sort of gradually worked my way, kept coming on back to, to academia. Um, so I worked for the British Red Cross for four years um, and kind of various other placements and things, but kept coming back for, for more study. Eventually did my PhD, which I finished end of 2019, and then uh, joined Cardiff in January.
0: Super. So you've been here uh, sort of a relatively short time.
1: Yeah, I had two months of being at Cardiff before lockdown. So yeah, I feel like I I would have loved to have had more time to actually be, you know, on campus, in my office, you know, meeting with students and so on. So yeah, it's unfortunate timing, but I guess in the grand scheme of everything that's going on, (laughs) not really a big deal.
0: (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Uh, And what are your thoughts of Cardiff so far?
1: Oh, I love it. I love it. It seems like um, just such a kind of great department, um, really kind of friendly and, and supportive colleagues and yeah, students, just the, so many of the students I met are just so kind of engaged in the topics. Um, yeah, it's it's been fantastic so far. Like I say, I just wish I'd had more time not on Zoom with everyone, but hopefully that will yeah. come.
0: We've <laughs> sort of got a bit of uh, screen brain, as it were. We'll, we'll be coming back to sort of how you've been coping um, during lockdown a, a little bit later in the podcast. You sort of alluded to it there, but can you give us a little bit more about your educational journey? You said you sort of switched between um, charitable organisations and, and various degrees. Tell us, tell us a little bit more about that.
1: Yeah, sure. So um, I did my undergrad in French and Italian um which I really really loved um and then I did as part of that you do your kind of year abroad so I did kind of uh sort of five months or so I think teaching English in in an Italian um secondary school and then um I did a placement with the French Red Cross for my kind of French part of that um, and then I got to the end of that and I, I really, really wanted to work in the charity sector. I was kind of, that was the one big goal. Um, and I knew I kind of, a lot of my lecturers were saying to me, you know, you should consider a master's. But I just, I hadn't, I, it didn't feel right in in to do a master's in languages. So I got a job um, at the British Red Cross and it was kind of like a couple of years into that really that um I started to think about sort of going back and doing a master's because I'd reached a point, I really wanted to work for the kind of International Committee of the Red Cross um, in Geneva. And even to get an internship there, as a minimum, you need a master's. And one of the kind of recommended subjects is international relations. And it's just not something that I'd really thought about because I'd kind of assumed that having started down the path of languages that I had to kind of carry on that way. Um, But I sort of looked into one particular course at Bristol in gender and IR and realized that actually with my undergrad, I could apply. So I did. I applied for that and and got a place and um, went down to part time hours at the Red Cross and kind of did the the master's. And as I was coming out the other side of that, I was applying for all these jobs in kind of Geneva and I kept coming very, very close, basically. So, you know, the, the International Committee of the Red Cross and organisations like that, it's incredibly competitive. And these were sort of paid internships that I was applying for and you know you needed like to speak multiple languages you needed a master's you needed experience in a red cross or a red crescent society I had all of these things but I was kind of consistently being told I was coming second um so it was quite a frustrating time and in the meantime I was also sort of applying to sort of for way trying to find ways to progress within like the, the British charity sector as well. And just really struggling, I think, you know, with the financial climate and the charity sector in general, it's it's not a career where you're sort of guaranteed to progress because you work hard or you're good at what you do, you know, quite the opposite, you know, and I knew, you know, I personally went through several kind of restructures and so, so did a lot of my uh, colleagues and friends. So, that was all kind of going on. And in the meantime, I had this sort of niggle in the back of my head about sort of how much I had absolutely loved my master's. Um, And my supervisor for my master's dissertation kept saying, you know, you should really think about a PhD. (laughs) And eventually I got one sort of knockback from the ICRC in in Geneva, the the women in war team, which I kind of thought was like my dream job. Um, And again, it it was... it was about a week, they'd actually sort of asked me to apply for it as well. So I thought, you know, that I'm really in with a shot. In the here. Door there. Yeah. And a week before the kind of deadline for PhD applications, they rang me and said, we're really sorry, you came second. <laughs> and I just thought, okay I've got a week and I went to my um master supervisor and I was like can I can I do this can I put together a PhD proposal in a week and she's like I'll do everything to help you so I scrambled together this PhD proposal and um you know thankfully had some very supportive uh, academics who were my referees who just kind of rushed everything through with me um to get it all done in time and I think it was a couple of months later found out that I got the funding so um sort of never really looked back. So I then, you know, I decided to, you know, I told, I told the Red Cross I was leaving and and sort of about, I think about six months later, they actually had a massive restructure and pretty much got rid of most of my team anyway. So yeah. it was great timing. <laughs> um, yeah. And I, so I then started the, the PhD and I just loved it. I, I had the, you know, it can be a really, really challenging uh, experience for lots of reasons but it just seemed to suit me so so well I, I loved having the freedom you know I think it's interesting like um, I think you work for any organization obviously there are kind of constraints about what you can and can't say and the kind of public image you project of yourself but especially with an organization like the Red Cross which is politically neutral that's really f- you know, it's one of its founding, like fundamental principles is a really important principle for their work in, in war zones and so on. So, you know, you, it, it's absolutely for very, very good reasons, but it puts a huge limit on what you personally, if you kind of, I, you know, identify yourself publicly as a member of staff for the Red Cross, what you can and can't say and things. And I found just coming into the PhD and having this, this academic freedom to kind of say what my findings meant mm. and why they mattered and 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 investigate you know research the subjects i was passionate about i just absolutely loved them so i kind of haven't really looked back from there
0: yeah it certainly sounds like a that's a bit of a roller coaster and i i know i can and i'm sure lots of people who are listening can relate to that I guess, relentless rejection and coming <laughs> so close to those jobs, but not quite sort of, you know, clinching it uh, So it's really good that you think that you're sort of finding passion in that's, that's really good to hear. I guess a bit like, um, Rachel Minto who we interviewed, um, earlier in the series, again, a different undergraduate degree to what you're now, um, lecturing in, what yeah. was that jump like? Did you find that challenging to move from languages to IR?
1: Yeah, I did. I found it, you know, because I went straight into the masters, you know, and you 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 launch in straight at the same level as people who've done a politics and IR undergrad, and some of it, you know, because doing languages, you do you do study politics, but you don't cover any of the kind of theory, or so yeah, it it was challenging, and I remember feeling like in the Especially in the kind of i r theory module, which was the first semester straight in and it just felt like everyone else knew what they were talking about already, and mm-hmm. I felt like I wasn't even really understanding the the um the readings at all so it was it was really challenging, but it kind of it got easier as it went on, and I began to realize also that maybe not everyone else quite understood it quite as well as they were <laughs> <laughs> they were making out they did um and yeah. And then also, I think you find your niche of what you're really, really interested in. And you get, if you get that subject area and you can write your essays on that subject area, then, you know, you can, you can find something. So for me, that was like feminist and post-colonial what I are, And, um, I kind of really went, yeah, followed, followed that passion, you know, and I ended up Kind of doing really, really well, and and like you know, I got a prize for my dissertation. But I remember in the kind of original, like the first few weeks of the, especially the theory module, just feeling like I can't do this. I'm not as good as everyone else.
0: As you say, overcoming barriers is a big thing for a lot of people yeah. um, in academia and elsewhere. So it's nice to hear, I guess, a positive story <laughs> about how that can uh, how that can sort of turn around. Um I guess a bit of self reflection. Are there any parts of the journey that you change at all? Anything that you would have done differently?
1: I don't, no, I don't think so. I was, I was thinking about this. I I think it's kind of, it's easy to say this with hindsight and a, and a lot of people do. <laughs> and I think this is a human tendency. We We rationalise everything kind of retrospectively, but I feel like everything has worked out kind of the way that it it should and and, you know I look back at that that those dream jobs that I kind of really desperately wanted in in Geneva and you know I have friends who got that kind of job and I don't envy their stress levels uh, or their (laughs) work-life balance Um, so you know it maybe it would have been amazing for a year or two but it also would have been really really tough Um, Mm. and quite you know very distressing it's a certain you know form of work right working somewhere like the international committee of the red cross um you know you were constantly dealing in really uh, really traumatic and and distressing issues as well and you know i, I really admire people who who can do that um, maybe you know maybe it would have worked out but actually i'm really happy with where where things have gone instead um, yeah, so I think it kind of all worked out the way it should have done in the end, or maybe that's just what we tell ourselves, but either way, I'm happy, so <laughs> who cares? <laughs> <laughs>
0: exactly. <laughs> um, I guess maybe less happy with with the current situation that we find ourselves in, Absolutely. unfortunately. We're all, of course, I guess, getting used to or, or are adept at working from home now. How How was that transition for you? How did you find that?
1: I think it was, well, it, it was really tough at first because, you know, the first sort of 11 weeks of lockdown in the spring, my daughter's nursery was closed. So, you know, my, my partner and I both work four days a week and normally our, our daughter's in the nursery three days a week. And suddenly we have like 30 hours of childcare we'd normally have that was non-existent and we're both mm. trying to juggle four day a week jobs. Um, so that was really exhausting. Um, really really exhausting uh, but we you know her nursery reopened in June and Touchwood is <laughs> still open <laughs> yes. since then it's kind of it's it's been okay it's it, you know it's it's nice to have you have the kind of quiet and the space to to do a lot of thinking and things but at the same time I really miss those interactions with colleagues and with students and just like casual walking down the corridor and bumping into people and having a chat and all of those things that I think they're not just nice to have I think they're important for our mental health and important also for all these discussions about you know when you're feeling like you're a bit lost with something or you just need a bit of a tip from someone or, um, you know, I think all of us get so much out of those everyday interactions. It is really tough on everyone. Um, yeah, I very much hope we find some way out of this soon. Um,
0: yeah, I certainly think we take that for granted, as you say. Those small in the corridor, in the moment interactions—it's those that I think we're missing out on most, really. I suppose we've been asking everyone: Are there any um sort of tips or or coping mechanisms that you developed during lockdown to sort of keep you going and 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 keep you sane?
1: I, I start at the start of lockdown. I got really into running. Um, which massively helped. And then I overdid it way too quickly and got a running injury and haven't been able to run since May. (laughs) So that was, yeah, another 2020 fail, unfortunately. (laughs) But um, yeah, I think the outdoors and exercise in general, you know, definitely I find massively, massively help. Um, I I think at the moment, it's so important to like, get the basics of what keeps us healthy and happy first. And then, like think about all of the work and everything you need to do, right? Because you can't plow on with that work if you're not in a healthy state. Um, you know, you're just, that's not going to end well um, and you're not going to end up doing the work very well either. And I think we've all had so many things taken away from us that keep us healthy that we don't even realize. Like just my, so my commute to Cardiff, I would normally uh, cycle to the train station, get the train and then have a sort of like 20 minute, half hour walk the other end. And it's actually like you don't notice that you think, oh, I've, I've gained all this time because I'm not commuting. But you, what you don't think about is like, yeah, but I've, I've lost a load of exercise and kind of being outdoors. Yeah, I,
0: I know that's certainly the same for a, a lot of people. And as we go into the winter, as we go into those colder months, it's certainly going to be harder for us to keep outside and keep active. Moving back to politics, it's been, I guess, a busy year in politics so far. There's a busy year in politics coming up. Senate elections in Wales, that's the dreaded B word. Um, I guess, if you can be, what are you most looking forward to about, about the next 12 months?
1: I think... Yeah, I'm I'm finding like as we get towards the end of this year, I'm actually really wary of hope in a way, which is, you know, with the announcements about the vaccine and things, I'm trying to stay calm and not get too excited about anything because it feels like we've all been quite badly burnt so many times this year. But if I allow myself to hope and, you know, it really should happen. I am really looking forward to seeing Donald Trump leave the White House.
0: <laughs> <laughs> yes, I think, uh, I think a lot of people would agree with you. <laughs> looking back at sort of your academic career so far and your work in the charity sector, is there anyone that really stands out? Who's the most uh, interesting or famous sort of figure, political figure that you've met?
1: I think, like, I don't, yeah, I haven't, I suppose not being really so much in politics, more in, like, development, um, I haven't really met many kind of famous people. I was on a panel at the Labour Party conference with Andy Burnham and Stephen Kinnock, but they had to dash off to another panel straight away, so I never even really got a chance <laughs> to talk to them. It was not great, not great claim to fame um I think it's more like a lot of the opportunities I had when I was working at the British Red Cross and I was um kind of collaborating with colleagues from the International Committee of the Red Cross so my job when I was at the Red Cross I taught um amongst other things I taught international humanitarian law in secondary schools and so I ended up working with the International Committee of the Red Cross on like developing a new teaching resource and kind of well they they were sort of developing it and I was helping trial it in schools in the UK um around, like, teaching the Geneva Conventions. Um, And so, yeah, just, like, getting to travel to Geneva, kind of have meetings with colleagues there and stuff, and just, I think, kind of hearing about the work that colleagues were doing there. Um, So they're not kind of famous names, but people that I found really kind of inspiring, just incredible work they do, like, um, you know, lawyers whose work is to sort of advise governments on... (laughs) the legality of certain actions in war and try and sort of plead the case for obeying the Geneva conventions and so on, you think this is absolutely incredible work that is, you know, life or death, basically.
0: Certainly, almost more inspiring than uh, meeting your, your local Cardiff <laughs> MP, I'm sure. <laughs> we'll, we'll end with a few sort of quickfire questions if you're, uh, if you're ready for those. Yeah, sure. Great. Uh, so, uh, first, tea or coffee?
1: Ooh, coffee.
0: Summer or winter?
1: Summer. <laughs> Definitely <laughs> summer.
0: Easy one, that one. Uh, Bristol or Cardiff?
1: Oh, in what context? That's mean.
0: <laughs> go with your gut instinct.
1: <laughs> uh, Bristol, I've lived here for 15 years, so Bristol is there where my go. home is, but I don't know Cardiff very well and I would love to get to know it better.
0: Well, hopefully, if we come back in a year's time, uh, you'll have uh, changed your answers to that question. <laughs> <laughs> um, Boris Johnson or Donald Trump?
1: Oh, oh no, neither. Can't, sorry, just cannot.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and uh, finally, if you could go anywhere in the world tomorrow, where would you go?
1: Uh, it's probably really boring, but I wish I could go to Dorset and see my family, but I can't because we haven't been isolating and I don't want to take... <laughs> nursery and university COVID gems to them. So yeah, that's I would love to go see my family.
0: I think that's a completely fair answer to that question. Uh, Dr. Rosie Walters, thank you so much for joining us today.
1: Oh, thank you for having me.
0: (laughs) Not a problem. Thanks very much for joining us. We'll see you very soon.